And the private sector is so clean, right? I mean, a, a company exists to make a product. If people want the product, they sell the product, they make money, they continue to exist. Too many people in the humanitarian nonprofit world, they exist by selling stories. And the stories aren't always real. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Aid Evolved. And I'm your host, Rowena Luke. This is a podcast about technology, poverty, and health. In this space, we'll be hearing firsthand the stories of people who have dedicated their lives to fighting poverty or delivering healthcare. People who are asking the question, can technology help us do this better? Now, imagine you're trying to set up an SMS service somewhere in the middle of the Congo rainforest, or you'd like to monitor a local election in the hills of rural Afghanistan. You'd like to build a system that can send and receive text messages directly to people's phones. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you're in a big city, you can probably think of a couple different ways to build that solution. But what happens if you're in a part of the world that doesn't have internet? Or if you're in a country so remote or so poor that the big providers like Twilio or Bonage just don't have a local number and there's no way that the people that you're trying to help are going to be sending messages internationally to an American or a European number. In the mid-2000s, a solution emerged called Frontline SMS. With Frontline SMS, all you needed was a laptop and a phone. Connect the two, install the software, and boom, you've got an application that you can configure or program to do whatever you want. Frontline SMS grew rapidly in popularity, to the point where it was used in some corner of most of the countries on the planet. Today, it is my honor to welcome Ken Banks to the show. Now, Ken is not the kind of person that you might imagine. For one, he's an anthropologist, in addition to being a social innovator and a technologist, and he doesn't have any kind of formal programming background. Today, he works as the head of social purpose at Yoti, a social enterprise that builds digital identity solutions. In our conversation, Ken opens up about the improbable story of Frontline SMS, how he built it over the course of a few weeks while he was unemployed, and then how he sat on it for two years, largely unused, before it caught the public attention and rocketed to fame. Ken's led a remarkable life, and he shares some of the decisions he's made and the philosophy that he's used in order to give himself the opportunity for incredible things to happen. Try to stick around for the end, where I ask him what he would do if his daughter said she wanted to go into the aid sector. What would he say to her, given all the highs and lows, the stresses, the frustration, the successes and the triumphs that he's lived through himself? He's got some great answers. But let's dive in. We start off our conversation with the story of where Ken's from and how he grew up. So originally, uh, I was born in Jersey, in the Channel Islands. That's not New Jersey. I always got really strange looks when I went to events in America and said I was from Jersey. It does have a reputation. They're like, hey, you're not from, you're not from Jersey. So I'm from the original Jersey <laughs> in the Channel Islands. And at school, I didn't do particularly well. Um, I, I was a very late academic developer, I suppose you could say. So I, I didn't get to university till I was 30 Oh, that's so encouraging. Yeah, I mean, I was I was a mature student, which was an experience in it in itself. But I I, I drifted into banking uh, when I left school uh, because everybody in Jersey, given it's an offshore financial center, drifts in into banking. 
And from there, I ended up in the IT department because I taught myself to code when I was 13. Oh, wow. That's young. Uh, on an old Commodore PET computer. <laughs> nice. Now, very crazy looking things. I've actually got one in the house here, which the kids kind of look at very bemusingly, wondering what on earth this, this big chunk of metal is. But it's just nice to look at it and just to remind me that that's how, how it really all began, just hacking on this strange box in the early 1980s and just finding that I had this strange knack for computing, not really, I had no qualifications. It wasn't even taught at school yeah. when I was doing that. So I, I'm that, that old. That was back when computers, you know, it was like, you, you want to work in computers? Why? Nobody has a computer. That's exactly it. And, you know, I was fortunate because the, the club down at the estate where I grew up, there was a, a guy there who was really advancing computer-aided learning. It's just a very strange hmm. place to, for a guy to be almost kind of pioneering this stuff. Yeah. But I ended up writing computer-aided learning programs for him. This was 82, 83. Wow. And so I kind of found myself on the cusp of this. And exactly as you say, at that time, you know, the idea of a computer on every desk, the idea that people, even if they could afford one, would know what to do with it. There was no software for these things. You just there was a few games and that, but for sure, there wasn't really much you could do. How lucky of you to have that opportunity! I imagine that must have shaped a lot of your your future thinking and work in the technology space. Oh, completely. I mean, Mister Mister Cooper, who who sadly passed away a few years ago, I managed to meet mm. him before I went to Stanford on my fellowship, and I just to personally huh. thank him because yeah. he gave me this opportunity, which you know, a, a scrappy young kid on a not a very nice housing estate. In Jersey, he was kind of a little bit lost, not doing well at school, didn't really know what he wanted to do. To have this chance to sit and hack away at these these machines, it really did shape my life because even though I didn't become a programmer professionally, I did code frontline SMS, you know, 30 or 40 years later. <laughs> but, but technology became a thread of, of my working life and it still is. And yeah, I wish Mr. Cooper could have seen the success that you came into after that point because I think that was right before you got big as it were <laughs> well yeah it, um, it took a long time to happen but uh no absolutely I, I i became very good at grasping every opportunity i had and hmm. i became very good at being flexible and adaptable and not tied down to any one thing in particular to enable me to grab that opportunity and that involved traveling and living in other countries on many occasions <laughs> yeah one common thread i can see in your life is definitely this this thirst for adventure um, and this ability to just jump in to the opportunity that presents itself to you. There's one particular decision that you made in life that I find particularly intriguing, and I, I think I haven't heard it unpacked elsewhere, um, which was your decision not to get a steady day job. You know, a lot of us, you graduate from school, we go work at a company, we get paid. Uh, and I think at some point you decided to be very, very intentional about the kind of work that you were going to do. I'd love to hear you talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, I think, um, you know, for me, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So there was no job out there for me. You know, if you want to become an accountant or a banker or maybe even in a, a coder, there are, there are jobs out there that are packaged and sold and created for people like that. I didn't really True. know what I wanted to do. So, But it's, the funny thing is there's so many people that don't know what they want to do and still end up as a banker or a coder or all these different things. Yeah, in a way, it's the default, I think, for a lot of people. They, they drift into something because it's an opportunity that's there and they either can't unpick what it is that they really want to do deep down. I mean, I, I knew that I wanted to, to give back and I always had that as a child. I was always very sensitive 
got upset very easily, was very emotional, was, was heavily criticized mm. by my teachers for being that. And huh. uh, later in life, I turned that to my advantage because when I saw injustices, <laughs> I couldn't turn my back on them. And so I was yeah. really bad at letting things go. And so I just laser focused on if I saw poverty or I saw an injustice or I saw something that wasn't right, I would co just commit myself 100% to trying, trying to solve it. And because the, yeah. the job for me didn't exist, I had to create it. I, I remember speaking about this a few times, particularly to, to younger people, that if the job that you want doesn't exist, you have to make it. And Qant.net <laughs> was me making that. And I, I, awesome. I absolutely nailed it, I think. I, I, I couldn't have been happier <laughs> during that time. Much of the work that Ken has done in the aid and development space is documented online in a resource known as Kuwanja.net. Kuwanja was the mechanism by which Ken shared his extensive writing, speaking, consultancy, and other resources for using technology for social change. As we were chatting, I asked Ken, what does Kuwanja mean? Kuwanja is Swahili for earth. It could be earth or meeting space, or you know, it could even be a football pitch or a rubbish dump. It, it, it's basically a space. Uh, in 2003, when I decided I wanted to create the organization, everybody was, you know, tech 365, mobile tech for good, ICT for something. And it all sounded so tech focused, driven by the tech. And I've never been driven by the tech. I'm, I'm driven by the huh. people, the problems, the cultures, understanding all the peripheral things around where the tech may well be able to help. So Kiwanja was neutral and it sounded nice. It was available. Yeah. And so I, <laughs> I just plumped for Kiwanja and it's, you know, 30 years on or what, 20 years on, whatever it is now, it's still me online. What I like about the name as well is, in its meaning, the earth, it sort of harkens back to the different sides of your career that you have. I think on the one hand, you're known for being a major conservationist and for being very active working in agriculture or conservation or, or ecosystems work. And at the other hand, um, you're known for your work with Frontline SMS. Can you talk a bit about that journey? Were you, were you leaning in one direction or the other? And what was it that eventually brought you to Frontline SMS? I've always uh, been very keen on the environment, always been very keen on nature. My mother was an amateur botanist, incredibly mm. well connected in the botany world. She could, you could <laughs> go on a walk with her and she would name everything in Latin. <laughs> uh, it ah, was, that's it awesome. was incredible. And, um, and what so an my education. It, yeah, it was, um, you know, really enjoyed it. And my, my grandparents were avid bird watchers. So I kind of grew up with nature and Jersey's naturally very beautiful. So I always loved the, the natural mm. world. Jersey Zoo and Gerald Durrell are on, on the doorstep there. So I, I spent time at the zoo. So conservation <laughs> was always something in my, in my blood, I guess. And so when I was sort of drifting and wondering what I could do with my life, and it's another reason why <laughs> I didn't go for a, a set job, because with a set job, you tend to just do one thing. And I never yeah. wanted to do one thing. <laughs> and so I, I sort of pushed into the, the conservation worlds a little bit while I was looking at development. And, you know, and interestingly, mm -hmm. today, when we look at conservation and development, they're not, they're not really, there's no dividing line between them. Oh, absolutely. You know, development sector needs a healthy environment. People need healthy environments. Environments produce a whole range of products and services that people need to be able to live you know, fruitful, happy, healthy lives. So I think the, 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 the drift mm -hmm. into the two were, but there was no intentional swing either way. But mm -hmm. I did draw, at least initially, I was drawn more to conservation simply because I kind of loved animals more <laughs> than people, I suppose. Um, <laughs> terrible. Um, They're less judgmental. 
Yeah, animals don't troll you and answer back, so uh, <laughs> a, bit, a little bit easier. But but I think when I was drifting, it 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 was just kind of there was I had more of a draw towards conservation work than I did towards development mm. work. That makes a lot of sense. And what was the journey there that brought you over then to the technology? Well, I guess you're already on the technology side that brought you over to Frontline SMS. Did it start off with conservation work or something else? Yeah, completely did. And ironically, the use case where the idea from, came from never actually materialized. So it, it, it huh. came from a, it came from a project funny. idea. It never happened. But then it sometimes went in <laughs> other directions. I mean, I, I was in Nigeria for a year in 2002 running a primate sanctuary. And this was part of me still searching for what on earth do I want to do with my life? You know, I'm in my 30s. Huh. I'm stuck in, stuck in Nigeria rehabilitating primates. <laughs> Has that experience helped you with parenting at all? Um, <laughs> probably. I, should, I probably shouldn't say so, but yeah, probably. <laughs> I, uh, I, I broke my leg at the, towards the end of that year, which was not a good oh, no. thing to do in Nigeria. But I, but I ended up back in the UK. Like a major, a major injury. A major, yeah. I broke my leg. It was, you know, no helmets, three on a bike. Could have been, could have been Ooh. the end of me, really. I'm glad you survived. Kind of reflecting on life a little bit at that point, but then, yeah. then did a reboot, I suppose. I was back in Jersey, no job, no money, no home, nothing really. You know, hmm. twenty odd years into my journey, I'd got nowhere. And then oh, I got man. a phone call from a conservation organisation in Cambridge, and the person there used to run Jersey Zoo. And they said, we've got some money from Vodafone. We need someone who understands technology and conservation. <laughs> and we only know one person who does technology <laughs> and conservation. This is 2002. And that's you. <laughs> Would you like a job? And so I oh, said, wow. well, I, I have nothing else keeping me here. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I, I worked on for two years with Fauna and Flora International looking at mobile phones in conservation and development. And that's oh. where the seed of the Frontline SMS idea came from. We were oh, working in Kruger National Park. Masks were starting to appear. Phones were starting to appear. And uh, I had a meeting one day and they said, can we send text messages to all the phones among the communities around the park to organize a meeting, to ask their opinion on something, just to basically mm. ease up the flow of information? And there was okay. no internet at the time. But mm. I went off, I did some research and I said, look, sorry, there's, there's nothing that you can use that doesn't, doesn't need the internet, that doesn't need credit cards, that isn't overly technical. Mm. And I went back and just carried on. For like a year, nothing really happened. Huh. I, I wish watching. someone would solve that problem. I wonder well, who. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, <laughs> nobody had solved it. Nobody probably knew it was a problem because there not enough huh. people were running around at that point, you know, in national parks across southern Africa. That kind of problem, and it wasn't really a sexy problem, right? It wasn't wasn't ever going to be a really big project, at least so I thought. Mm. But you know, a year later, I was watching a football match on telly, drinking beer, totally <laughs> randomly. The idea just. Uh, who knows? <laughs> if you plug a phone with a cable into a laptop and then you write some software, could you drive the phone remotely through an interface? And if you could, could you pump out hundreds of messages? And could you get replies back into the computer? And no one had really done that. So went on eBay, bought some cables, bought some phones, went back <laughs> to my life for a week or two. It all arrived in the mail, plugged it all in, opened up terminal in Windows, had a little play and lo and behold, like I just I just kind of stood there. I sent I, I typed in the commands <laughs> on the computer to tell the phone to send me a text. And I got the text and I just thought, wow. That's awesome. This could be amazing. And and so <laughs> that was the first line of code, I guess, for front what became frontline SMS. 
<laughs> That's really cool. I'm glad you had that moment of inspiration while you were sitting there in front of the couch. And <laughs> as the idea came to you, was it was this something that was in line with the work that you were doing with this organization already? Was it a weekend? Like how did you how did like how did you get together the the time or the headspace to be like, okay, I'm gonna do this completely new thing. I'm gonna start writing this thing that doesn't exist before. Cause you know, so many people have an idea, but then there's the execution of it. How did that happen? So I had left um, Fauna and Flora by the time I had the idea, um, oh, which, which in a way really? is maybe a little bit infor- a little bit fortunate for me. They never <laughs> they never had any issues with me pursuing it because they're they're a conservation organisation and they did actually end up using it for things, hmm. and we did do some very valuable work together. So I, I was consulting. I was consulting with UNEP. I was doing stuff with Nike Foundation. I was I was basically a consultant before yeah. SMS came along. So when I had the idea, it was a hobby. I, I <laughs> That's bought, awesome. Yeah. I That's mean, amazing. I, yeah, I mean, we I, should uh, all make time for hobbies, you know, like when in the rush and the tumble of doing whatever it is that your boss tells you to do, it's hard to find time for that kind of thing. But clearly if you didn't have time for this hobby, then Frontline SMS would never have been born. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I um, I kind of had the idea. I thought it was use- worth pursuing. I love coding. I hadn't coded for a long time. Mm. Mobile phones in conservation and development were still pretty new. So I, <laughs> I was blessed to be on the kind of cusp of this wave. And, w- and when I had the idea for this software, you know, there was nothing else like it. So I thought, well, if I don't write this, nobody else probably will write it for a while. And it was a mm. challenge. And so I did it weekends and things. I kind of pursued it. And then over five weeks, my, my wife is Finnish. And at the time, she was my girlfriend. So we went to Finland for the summer. And I sat mm-hmm. at her, her parents' kitchen table. And I wrote it over five weeks, just sat down with lots of coffee and finished words <laughs> and just and the wow. at the same time. And October 2005, just thought, OK, it's as good as I think it needs to be. It works. It's stable. I just threw it out to the world and went back to my day job. That's incredible. And how did it make the transition from being a hobby into something more? You put up the website. What was the moment where you thought, oh, maybe somebody in the world other than me is going to use this? <laughs> well, you know, two weeks in, Kubatana in Zimbabwe, who are an amazing civil society organization. Mugabe was at the height of his his powers. There was all the kind of destroying and torching of, of MDC areas and communities devoted for the MDC, who he did see as a threat for a while under Morgan Changarai. And they picked it up and started using it to, to send information around Zimbabwe to keep communities updated with what was happening in the country and to enable people to, to send messages back to say what was happening where they were. And that for me was, was a really big thing. And I thought to myself, you know, if they are the only user, if they're <laughs> the only person that actually thinks this is useful, I'm happy. I, you know, I had nice. no plans, but it, you know, it got right. picked up in other places and, and slowly, you know, I think after two years we had 80 downloads. It wasn't setting the world on fire, but it was doing <laughs> stuff. And then it was used to monitor the Nigerian presidential elections in 2007. Oh, wow. And that was the moment, where, as you say, that I realized it, it, it became a story on the BBC. Suddenly, yeah. everybody was interested. Donors started knocking on my door saying, hey, you know, you've been doing this for two years without any money. Would you like some money? And I thought, <laughs> well, I mean, if you've got some. Um, <laughs> Um, that that I could great. certainly improve the software. I could certainly do a better website and we could certainly do more outreach. So MacArthur, yeah. on the back of the Nigerian presidential elections use case, um, gave me a couple of hundred thousand dollars. Then awesome. I started hiring people and it, it grew from there. But I think the big oh. lesson for me 
in all of this was don't throw your life at something until you know it's useful to people. And don't quit your day job and put all the financial pressure that might go that might go with doing that until you know there is potential for your idea oh, to interesting. get some roots somewhere. I frequently used to go to these innovation kind of pitches and, and somebody would stand up with a, a little idea and say, I've I've mortgaged my house, I've sold my car. <laughs> And I've done everything. And, and you might admirably look at that and say, my goodness, that person's committed. But talk about putting yourself under pressure, right? Yeah, for sure. And what I find fascinating about your story and how it unfolded as well is that Frontline SMS was clearly a good idea. You know, anyone listening to this podcast knows that it's been used in, you know, whatever, 190 countries. But if you had if you had gone all in the moment you got the idea, then you would have spent two years with with nothing. Uh, you know, you might have gone bankrupt after year one. What you did do is you worked on it. And then after two years, for reasons completely outside of your influence, it suddenly picked up. It's, you know, Nigeria started using it. And that was a turning point for you. It's wild that it didn't happen right away. You know, the way that you think these things go. Yeah. I mean, I wish it had been two years was probably a bit longer than I would have liked. But I mean, I didn't really <laughs> until the Nigeria use case, it, it hadn't. It was useful to people, but you know, I was people reporting bugs, and I was fixing them in the weekend, and I was releasing new versions. and And, and what what was also very interesting when people downloaded the first version, I asked for their email address, and I asked them to tell me where they were and what they planned on doing with it. Hmm. And I got hammered for that. I got hammered for oh, you know, you shouldn't Why? be this, you shouldn't be asking people that. This is supposed to be you know the free and open source thing was really all about trusting and just throwing your stuff out to the world and and not asking questions and it was it was strange it was strange but I think the one thing that proved incredibly useful to me was as soon as we started to get traction and as soon as it started to build I could reach out to everybody that had downloaded and used it and say what can I add that's useful to you what doesn't Mm. work and so it was always built and functionality was always built on the back of what people asked for and wanted, not what I could build because it was cool. And right. I see way too much tech that's built because it's cool or functionality <laughs> was added because it's cool. Yeah. Final SMS was a one megabyte download. Wow. That's crazy. And I look at, um, <laughs> you know, I look at like these games my kids play, it's like 800, <laughs> 900 meg. WhatsApp's like probably 800. <laughs> I, I, yeah. it, you know, it was lean, it worked, it didn't have anything more in it than it needed to have. Yeah. And I think there's there's an interesting thing that's happened over the course of this open source evolution where you, it, it definitely was, everything's open source, everything's free. And now people are saying, it's not actually free. Somebody needs to maintain it. Somebody needs to push it forward. It needs to grow and evolve. Somebody needs to fix bugs. And, you know, there's a whole counter movement of like, it's free, but it's not free. And, you know, maybe open source is oversold. I think many of our guests talk about how open source is, is oversold. I think what you're talking about there is making something available for free, but there's some kind of value that that did become useful or important later on, which is the community, the outreach, the connections. You know, like you didn't you didn't ask for money, but you asked for an email, you asked for a name. And that seems like a very, very powerful thing to to have and a way to build the community that you needed. Yeah. And I I I still say to this day, although I've not probably not as up to date as I should be now, but at the time we had the most vibrant, engaged, amazing community of users that inspired me every single day. You know, some days I'd go onto That's the awesome. online community. Somebody in Nicaragua had posted a problem or a question. And before I had a chance to answer, somebody from Zimbabwe and somebody from Namibia and somebody from India had already dived in and answered. And <laughs> they were all nice. so determined to help each other. 
and it was it was just beautiful. And I think the soft software is one thing, but the community we built around it that's even harder. You know, communities, good communities are tough. Absolutely. On the topic of the the community of users that you saw growing and the attention that it was getting, that must have put a lot of pressure on on the code, on you, on on various aspects of your life. Was it hard? Were there moments where that momentum and that velocity felt like it was going maybe a little too quickly for you? The pressure bit's a, a great question, really. And towards the end, I did feel a huge degree and a huge amount of responsibility. And that was one of the reasons why I eventually stepped back, that I, I felt I'd done everything I could probably do. I like to start things and get things going. But then when it becomes more an issue of anti-corruption policies and, and you know massaging donors, egos. And, Somebody's got to do it. And they have to do it, absolutely. But I think it's important that you recognize where your strengths are. And if you're not doing the things that you're strong at, it doesn't matter whether it's your baby or somebody else's baby. I think you need need to step back. But the pressures I felt, yeah, I mean, I, I was going to bed at night and I, I knew that people were doing, you know, during the state of emergency in Pakistan, activists were using it to get information out of the country because it was safer mm. to do it that way. We had activists in Zimbabwe. We had people in Nigeria. People were putting their lives on the line to do incredibly incredibly valuable work that I was able to to support. And I was always aware I was a step back from it. But the responsibility I felt that, you know, this software, it can't crash. It can't go wrong. It, it needs to keep working for these people because it gives them such value. That's a strange pressure that I actually don't see enough people talking about. I might, I may have blogged about it, but I can't remember. Yeah. They say in the startup space, and they say that founders make terrible CEOs, <laughs> you know, because there's the person who has the idea and then there's the person who who does the networking or the fundraising or whatever it is that, that CEOs do to like keep it going. And that, that kind of, that resonates in your story. You know, you're the, you're the ideas guy, but you weren't necessarily the person who was going to build the site reliability engineering team. I'm a scrappy guy who likes to, you know, write stuff on kitchen tables, <laughs> build websites in the day, you know, live in a camper van for, for two years at Stanford and, and <laughs> spend no money on anything other than his work. <laughs> That's how I you know, like now I'm writing a book, but I'm I'm writing chapters while I'm cooking the kids dinner and I'm writing chapters, you know, while I'm watching oh, yeah. telly. And it's um it's difficult, but I, I don't know. I, if it's too easy, I just don't want to do it. <laughs> we definitely need to talk more about living outside of the camper van at Stanford. Oh, okay. <laughs> you must have been the only, not maybe not the only student, but in a, in a university like Stanford, I, I can't imagine there are many students uh, living out of their vans. <laughs> now, looking back, uh, you know, from all these years on, do you have any thoughts about the legacy of your work with Frontline SMS? I guess legacy is one of those interesting words. I use the word interesting. <laughs> you know, I've always tried. It, it feels a little bit sort of um, siding towards an ego to think that you have a legacy or to want a legacy or even to work towards a legacy. Mm. Uh, and I, I've seen too many egos in my time that are destructive. So I've I've tried quite hard to not let mine take over in any way. So I wouldn't say that my legacy matters to me necessarily, but I do feel very disappointed that or upset or frustrated that the sector doesn't really appear to be learning much from huh. the lessons and the failures of the past. How I think mean? people are still chasing shiny things. I think donors mm. are still funding in large part the wrong things. I think too much development and tech work is based in the West. I think a lot of donors feel more comfortable funding Western-based organizations. I think the salaries of a lot of people working in development are way over, 
some of them are incredible let's put it that way and yeah. for people working in humanitarian sector where you know you're working with people who are disenfranchised impoverished struggling day to day some of the lives people were leading working for organizations tackling that just didn't feel right to me hmm. and i feel the kinds of things that you know the lessons that frontline sms taught me you know listen to your users work with your users first and foremost understand the problem build appropriate technologies give control to the users i don't i right. don't see enough of that even now yeah it's sad how slowly the sector can move in 2010 rajiv shah the head of usaid committed to increasing the funding for local you know local organizations in country from 10 to 30% of usaid spend didn't even come close <laughs> during his entire term and we still aren't close and and part of the reason for that is just that you know it's like the the whole system isn't isn't built to make that that possible, um, but that yeah. is a future that I would I would love to see as well. And, and and you're right that very very marginal progress has been made in that direction. Yeah, I mean, if I had any legacy at all, I I would hope that it's at least shifted a few people into developing solutions in what I would call a more appropriate, more empowering way. And I know there are people out there that I've mentored and helped, and there are many frontline SMS users who used it as a stepping stone. Medic Mobile, you know, frontline SMS Credit, which became Copo Copo. There's there's some wonderful stories of how Africa's voices out of Cambridge University that came out of out of frontline SMS Radio. So there's some wonderful examples of of how we incubated projects and incubated some great talent that's gone on to do amazing things. If awesome. my legacy is just having helped and encouraged a few people, that's totally fine by me. I hear you. Wow. Ken, these days I know you've you've sort of switched gears a little bit and and now you're in the and now you're in the private sector. What is it is it is it this thing that you're just talking about this frustration that you have with the aid sector that that got you to switch over and how are you finding it in the private sector? In short, yes. I, I just got <laughs> very very tired and frustrated. You know, I, I don't think that I'm so amazing that people should just listen to me and do as I say, but I, I think I think having built well, you know, having built Frontline SMS, which I think was one, one of the early few good examples of if you build something in a certain way, you can, you can achieve, overachieve. I think overachieve mm. is probably the right, the right word. But, but I think the fact that so few people paid any attention to that and were interested in learning why it worked was a big disappointment. Mm. And I think the wider issues around, you know, Western-based organizations, money going to the West, people flying around, too many people that look like me still being in, in dominant positions just led yeah. me, you know, if I can't change the things that are bugging me, I was going to bed angry. I was going to bed frustrated. It, my, I wasn't happy anymore. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't happy anymore. And I recognized I wasn't happy anymore. And and never one to wallow. I just thought, you know, let's just get out of this. I've, I've had a good run. And so I thought, you know, oh, I look at the private sector. And the private sector is so clean, right? I mean, a, a company exists to make a product. Mm. If people want the product, they sell the product, they make money, they continue to exist. Too many people in the humanitarian nonprofit world, they exist by selling stories. And the stories aren't always real, right? So you don't really oh. even have to be doing something that people really want. You just have to convince other people who've got the money that the other people want it. And so oh, the economics of it are just so much, I'm so much more comfortable with the, just the out and out economics of mm. working now back in the private sector. And so that's how I ended up at, at Yoti. Yeah, I, I really love the way that you describe that, that selling stories instead of products, it it, it, it resonates in an uncomfortable way. <laughs> um, I think, I think <laughs> you really nailed the head, hit the nail on I mean, the head with that one. was a very interesting 
company because I, I was on their Guardian Council for a couple of years. So they were they were looking to build technologies ethically. With What's a Guardian Council? Mind. Sorry? What's a Guardian Council? So a Guardian Council at Yoti, it's, it's an external body of independent people. So it's a little bit, I suppose, uh, like the oversight board at Facebook. Gotcha. They stole the idea from Yoti, I guess. <laughs> so it's where, you know, the company can go if they've got a tricky problem or they're, they're, they're developing a product where there might be issues of exclusion or there might be some privacy and security concerns. They will go to the Guardian Council. We meet, we met, met quarterly, we'd discuss them, mm. we'd help the company work their way through them. So we helped with the seven guiding principles of the company. We helped figure out what the terms and conditions mm. on the app should be, how you can describe them in a way that makes sense to users who don't want to read pages and pages of terms and conditions and privacy policies. And so I so, you, so you really helped shape the company even before you joined full time. Absolutely. And so I um you know I was on nice. the on that council for two years and I, I um when I started looking for work I I joked with a, a friend there that if they wanted a head of Jersey, because the Jersey government used Yoti as the identity provider to allow Jersey citizens to log into government services. Oh, wow. Thought, you know, I'm from Jersey. I know Yoti. <laughs> I'd be head of Jersey. And I don't being head of Jersey. And, and he said, Chris said, um, well, no, but, you know, are you looking for a job? And I said, yes. So the CEO, oh. Robin Toombs, emailed me. We had a phone call. I went in the office. Uh, we he said, look, go go off, write what you do for us, who you can introduce us to, the kind of vision you have for digital identity and and the social space, and uh, let's talk. So the job yes. was very organic. There wasn't a a role there for someone like me, but he created it. Wow, That's and awesome. I think I think now I, I I think Yoti are doing. I'm about to say it, but I think we're doing some of the most interesting social purpose work within at least the digital identity sector in in the in the private sector world i'm incredibly proud to work for i think one of the few companies that, that does that and also just to say you know everything all of the costs of my programs and my salary come out of the operating budget you know we're a startup mm. you know <laughs> the ceo could easily throw that money into sales teams <laughs> that's amazing particularly for a company the size of yoti it's not it's not a giant company and so that's that's a significant dent uh in their operating budget absolutely can i, I wanted to ask you one last question before we switch over to some of the some of the rapid fire questions. One, one last question I had for you was, uh, you know, about working in the aid of the humanitarian sector, uh, particularly now that you've transitioned out. Um, the question I had was, you know, if your, if your daughter came to you and said, you know, she wanted to do some good in the world and she was thinking of going into aid or the humanitarian sector, what would you say to her? What advice would you give her? I certainly wouldn't discourage her. And my children actually are already asking me what, what on earth it is that I do. <laughs> And you know, well, that's good practice. Again, it's a beautiful age where they are starting now to take an interest in the environment. And you know, the house is full of African things and things from my travels and pictures of me and Archbishop Tutu on the wall and that. So they're, they're kind of just, <laughs> like me. They're growing up with this, and I and I, I I love the fact that I can I can give them that. I think I would first and foremost I would encourage all of my children to pay attention. That's the first mm. thing. So pay attention to what's happening in the world. Pay attention to where you're fortunate and other people are, are less fortunate. If they want to go into the huh. aid sector, I would certainly encourage probably a two-pronged approach. I think, one, find a larger international organization tackling a big problem, the kind of problem that you couldn't tackle on your own. So, you know, support them, fundraise for them, volunteer for them, and then find something that you can do yourself, which is probably more local, where you will see... Huh the individual impact of what you do. 
So it's much closer. So, you know, climate change, right, for example, is a great example of a big problem. No single person is going to see the impact of their changed or renewed or altered behavior on the climate. But they will know that if lots of people do it, it will have one. So get involved Mm. in that on the macro scale. And on the on the on the smaller scale, think about homeless people. When you go to town, you know, we have problems Mm. in the next town where we live. There are people on the streets in the freezing cold. There are refugees resettling in these areas who need help, support, and so on. So do the big stuff and but also find something which is much closer to home where you can see your impact and you can actually taste it, smell it, and see it. And I think the combination of those two things would be enough to give you and and keep paying attention. Nice. I think the combination nice. of those things for me would be enough to to give them a, the right kind of initial direction. And then I hope they will find their own way after that. Nice. I love that message. I love the the two prongs of it. One, the big picture purpose. And two, the part that I think doesn't get enough attention, your role, you know, your felt experience, your connection with what's going on, be it, be it big or small, but in a way that uh, is relevant in your life, uh, that maybe some of the big picture stuff might be harder to feel. You know, completely. And you know, don't believe the narrative that unless your work is going to impact X million people, that it's not worth doing. I, I, I'm so, mm. so sick and done with that. If <laughs> you can just help five people, if we all just help five people, then we've pretty much solved the problem, right? Ha, huh, that's um, true. <laughs> so I just, I just detest this whole, oh, uh, you know, well, frontline SMS, you can only send 100 messages at a time. It's, you know, it's never going to scale. Hmm. Listen, go away and show me something you built. <laughs> even better and then we'll talk you know i I found that very frustrating so so you know for me if my daughter just goes and helps two people if she befriends some refugees or whatever who may be settling in the area helps them you know reaches out and does something that's enough for me i think we we don't need to be looking at scaling to millions of people to to have have the impact on the planet that you know people seem to want us to have that i think that's nonsense how many people (laughs) impact millions of people <laughs> That's beautiful, Ken. Wow. All right, Ken, let's dive into our rapid fire questions. The first one, which you can answer unless you feel like you already have, <laughs> is if you have any advice for young professionals, people who are thinking to start working in digital health, if you have any guidance for them. Well, I think over and above the things that we've discussed, and it feels that that's been a thread that's gone through a lot of our, our conversation. I, I think it's so, so important to spend time with the people that you want to help. Mm, so I would, I would argue, and this is certainly something that I did a lot of in the early days, if, if you have ambitions to help with anti-malaria projects or with epilepsy projects or whatever it might be, that you spend time working, living, or even just you know observing communities that suffer from those particular problems. Because yes. I think it's incredibly naive to think that you can have an impact on a problem if you haven't spent the time to try and properly understand it. Yes. Do you have any requests for donors or policymakers who might be listening to this podcast? I would love, um, well, donorscharter.org is my, my, my plea to donors. Hmm. I think donors should uh, spend a bit more time not chasing the next big shiny thing, and they should look for what works and just support what works. That's a very, very simplified version of that message. There's a charter on, on the website, and I can give you the link, and you can maybe put it on the show notes. Yeah, but it's sure. a charter which encourages donors to think a little bit differently about what they fund and how they fund it. It's about eight years old, never shifted a single thing, but <laughs> I felt good putting it out there. <laughs> we'll keep on putting it out there until something changes. <laughs> Can you recommend a tool or a product, something that's been useful to you that you yourself did not build? 
a tool or product that I've used. Um, well, mobile phones are pretty useful. <laughs> you know, that's a good answer. It's a great answer. <laughs> but uh, no, I think that probably would be it. I mean, no one's going to disagree with that one. Use what's there. That's probably it, actually. Use what people have. I mean, maybe it's not one for me so much, but but work to what people have in their hands. Uh, and that for me was mobile phones. Right. Is there a common implementation mistake or a common error that you see people in this space doing? Oh, lots. <laughs> uh, not What's your problem. pet peeve? <laughs> not understanding the problems, one. I think creating mm. an organization before you know you've got something useful is another. There's lots. <laughs> yeah. Would you like to give a shout out or a kudos to another mover or shaker in this space? Oh, my goodness. I mean, there's there's going to be so many. I, I suppose, you know, one of my longest standing friends, Eric Hersman, uh, also known as White African, who, <laughs> you know, founded, you know, Ushahidi, iHub, Brick, all sorts of things. I've known Eric from the very beginning. He actually wouldn't speak to me at the very beginning. <laughs> Until Frontline SMS got used in Nigeria, I could not get <laughs> him to speak to me. And suddenly he started speaking to me. We've become very good friends. I, I just admire <laughs> Eric. He just gets stuff done. <laughs> rather than moan about other people not solving a problem or there being a gap that no one's paying attention to he just goes out and fills that gap and i, I just love <laughs> like that nice last question for you ken is if there's a book an article a podcast or something that you would recommend either related to this work or just for fun well for fun i would say um into the wild john krakoa i love that book the film is absolute nonsense and a complete disaster so the, the book is incredible uh just just being wanderlust and just just following instincts and doing what you believe in. So that that's the fun one. And the idea of burning money in your wallet and just abandoning your car. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's like that's commitment, right? You want to see commitment? That's commitment. <laughs> I hear you. I think that may be one of my favorite books of all time. And what's also interesting about it is that the the story is so controversial. You know, you either love it or you hate it. Yeah, I'd say on the um, the work one, it would have to be Small is Beautiful, E.F. Schumacher. Nice. Basically, the birth of the appropriate technology movement kind of around the time of that book in 1973. It's, you know, 40 years old, but there's still lessons we can learn from it. Nice. Thank you so much for your time, Ken. If listeners to the show want to find out more about you or your work or the things you're doing now, where would you recommend that they check you out? So my personal kind of previous work and my writings and things and my new book, which will be out soon, hopefully, uh, www.kiwanja.net. And then for Yoti, and um, we're doing some really interesting stuff this year, Y-O-T-I, yoti.com slash social dash purpose would be the best place to read about all that work. Awesome. Thank you, Ken. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. As Ken mentions, he's currently working on his fourth book, appropriately named The Pursuit of Purpose. It's about his life, and it's also a study about finding meaning, passion, and purpose for all of us. One of these chapters is dedicated to Mr. Cooper. You remember the fellow he mentioned in our interview. Mr. Cooper created a safe space for kids like young Ken to play. And one of the things they got to play with was one of the very first personal computers, the Commodore PET. It was on this machine that young Ken taught himself how to code, a skill that, as you've heard, proved invaluable later in his career. If only... Mr. Cooper could have seen what an effect that opportunity would have on the incredible trajectory of Ken's life. If you'd like to hear when that book comes out, you can sign up for updates on the website 
kiwanja.life. That's K-I-W-A-N-J-A dot life. And if you have any questions or feedback or just want to say hello, don't hesitate to reach out to us on Twitter at 8Evolved or via email at podcast at 8 Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.